can you kindly tell us uh, what you know about the <clears throat> prevalence of arsenic and brown rice? I grew up eating brown rice and I love eating brown rice, but recently a number of uh, <clears throat> nutritional experts and doctors have recommended to limit intake of brown rice due to the prevalence of arsenic. And it, my second question relates to, I've traveled to China a couple of times, and there are the people who eat a traditionally plant-based diet, <clears throat> eat tons of white rice, and they don't get diabetes. And I'm just wondering about <clears throat> the cultural differences and <clears throat> whether white rice is safe for people that <clears throat> have that preference due to their cultural. <clears throat> okay. No, it's a good, it's a good question. It's good for us to be aware. Uh, rice does bioaccumulate arsenic. All types of rice in all countries bioaccumulate arsenic. And if you were to have one serving of white or brown rice per week, it, the amount of arsenic seems to be fine and not a problem. But if you were to eat it every day and especially several times a day, I know when we visited China, every meal had a bowl of white rice and you would put whatever else you were eating on top of it. And uh, so what I did is I put whatever else I was eating on top of it, but I didn't eat the white rice. Um, white rice is really a pretty worthless food. Did you know how they discovered the first vitamin? vitamin B1, they discovered it when they first made white rice out of brown rice, because before that, no one had ever had a deficiency of B1. Uh, and it's a terrible, painful disease that happened. So I would recommend whole grain rices, no more than once per week. And that could be wild rice or brown rice, or there's many, many types of rice out there that are excellent. But white rice, even though it is eaten in some cultures like in Japan and China, one of the reasons they get less diabetes there is they're much thinner people and their livers tend not to get overburdened with fats. And the other reason is the rest of their diet is so good that it manages to overcome the white rice. But the white rice is a detriment, not a help. And so it's best not to eat it. I know it tastes good, but um, if you're having trouble breaking away from it, you could try half rice, half brown rice, half white rice. And then after you get used to that, perhaps you can move to brown rice itself or one of the flavorful colored rice, like Weihani rice, which is beautiful and uh, colorful and fun, tasty. Okay, thank you for your question. Thanks very much, Steve. And looks like we are gonna give Ainsley another try. Hi, Ainsley. Hi, morning, everyone. You hearing me now? We can, thank you. Okay, sorry about that. Doctor, I heard you mention something about sprouts. I, I'm in love with broccoli sprouts and have it in its natural state when it's um, germinated. Is there anything that we can do to, well, they, they, they say that we're supposed to freeze it then eat it in that kind of mushy state. Or in your belief, should we just eat the broccoli sprouts in its natural state? Thanks. I didn't completely understand. There was some breaking up. Ben, can you relay that? Actually, Ainsley, I'm going to have you ask that again. I was a little unclear as well. Okay, doctor. Sorry again. I heard you mention something about sprouts. I like broccoli sprouts a lot because of its sulforaphane content. In your knowledge, is there any way or anything more we can do to the broccoli sprouts to increase its sulforaphane content? 
Oh, oh, I see. Well, no, there's nothing. Uh, chew them. Yeah, that, <laughs> that's all they need. Um, the, the broccoli sprouts contain glucosinolates and an enzyme called myrosinase. And when you chew them, the enzyme is released, the myrosinase, and it processes the glucosinolates into the uh, sulforaphane, isothiocyanates, including sulforaphane. So really, the broccoli sprouts are good to go. However, if you're eating broccoli, for instance, it's a good idea to chop it, leave it on the chopping board for a few minutes so that uh, it's only when it's broken that the enzyme becomes active to create more sulforaphane. So it's a good idea to leave it out. Or if you blend it, that creates tons of sulforaphane if you're talking about broccoli or kale or any of those cruciferous vegetables. So um, yeah, your broccoli sprouts are going to be really helpful with... Uh, the sulforaphane is a wonderful anti-inflammatory, very healthful. Thank you. Thanks very much, Steve. And um, let's now go to, whoops. We're going to bring Ruth back in and welcome back, Ruth. Thank you. Okay. I, when I was asking you about the sugars, I forgot uh, these sugar substitutes, I, uh, sweeteners at least, I forgot to ask you about xylitol which uh, seems to be in everything, uh, toothpaste and et cetera. They say it's good. Um, I have something called Xylo Sweet, which is a natural xylitol sweetener. Um, what do you think? And then, uh, okay, so that's one thing. And the other thing, uh, two things, I don't know if you can answer this. I, I, I didn't get a chance to ask it the other night about B12. Um, if I'm just wondering with folate, am I able to take, should I have that with, in the liquid form uh, or in, in the pill form? I'm just wondering, a capsule form. Okay, okay so um, the vitamin B12 can be taken in the pill form. Uh, I've checked and study after study show, you know, they measure people's B12 in their blood, they give them the pills and it raises the blood levels. And they also give them the oral drops, it raises the blood levels. I do prefer the methylcobalamin when I put in my brain and body food, I, I use 200 micrograms per day. And I know that's my only source of vitamin B12. And when I get blood tests, it does show up uh, having good, good absorption. Uh, let's see, oh, as far as xylitol goes, it's okay. I prefer erythritol. It's a little bit um, mintier and it's a little healthier but I think xylitol is an okay sweetener too. Um, and of course, stevia is another alternative for non-caloric sweeteners. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, thanks very, very much, Steve. And let me go ahead and... Uh, so uh, it looks like right now we don't have any more questions. We're just about out of time anyway. I, I, um, I, I'm, I'm curious. So you've uh, spoken with us today about diabetes in the past you did a very thorough presentation on Alzheimer's as well and, and dementia. And um, I, I guess I just wanted to follow up. Are, can you just make the correlation for people? Actually, you know, I was going to ask you about the correlation between the diet for diabetes and the, di and the recommended diet for dementia, uh, for dementia and Alzheimer's. And if you find that it's pretty much the same works for both. <laughs> Well, Ben, I think uh, I know your answer. I have to, <laughs> I, I have to say that uh, yes, the diets surprisingly are similar. When you look at a good, healthy diet that supplies the nutrient needs of a human being, keeps all the cells vital and active and alive, 
then this is helpful for both. With uh, dementia and without diabetes, you may be able to include uh, more bananas and mangoes and sweet fruits uh, than you would with diabetes. So that'd be one little difference. Um, I, I, when I think about those 10 steps that we could take, that they did take to reduce uh, diabetes, uh, all of them would be helpful with dementia as well. Uh, but certain nutrients like vitamin B12, I don't see a tie-in with diabetes but there's a very definite tie-in with dementia. So it would be, you know, I do design the diets a little bit differently, but they're similar because the perfect diet for a human being is the perfect diet for a human being. And it's not that different between the different diseases. We just want to be healthy.